Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here today. And do we have any graduates in this, in this service? If you could just raise your hand, just pop it up real quick. Okay, we got a couple going on here. Um, it's a big day, and um, we're praying for you. And we got your back. Stick to what you know. You'll do great. Um, one quick announcement. So in order to make Sunday school happen over the summer, we need about 10 volunteers, about five teachers and five helpers. If you would be willing to help out um, with kids' Sunday school, we would really appreciate it. Just let the office know if you're interested, and uh, we will get you plugged in. So how many of you ever heard the phrase, you'll play like you practice? Have you heard this phrase? Have you ever played in a sport? You probably heard the coach say that a thousand times. You're going to play the game like you practice it. Now, that came through in a really kind of weird way when I came across a description of a self-defense class um, that was offered here not too long ago where the guy teaching the self-defense class, he used fake guns in the class. And everybody in the class had a partner, and the partners were going to share one gun. But he told the class this. That whenever you're transitioning the gun from yourself to the, the next person, he said, drop it on the ground. And he said, never, ever, ever hand that gun to your partner. That sounded kind of weird to the class, and he could tell that sounded weird to them. And they said, okay, well, help us out here. Why is it that we need to drop the gun on the ground before it goes to the next person? He said, I'll tell you why. You would be shocked how many people, when they're in that crisis situation, they're being assailed by somebody, it's a life or death situation, how many people will hand the gun to the assailant? He said, it sounds nuts, I know. But he said, I'll show you the video footage of how many times this happens. And he said, for that reason, I never want you to pass your gun to a person because in the heat of the moment, you are going to do what it is that you've practiced. This is not just true in sports and self-defense classes. In most any crisis that you and I are going to face, the little decisions that we are making right now in our day-to-day -day lives will have a bearing on how we handle a crisis that comes in our lives. And we never know when it's going to come. How many, how many young people, those seniors that are graduating, did you hear in that video talk about what this past year has been like? None of us knew what was going to be coming in the past year. None of us know what's going to happen next. None of us know when a crisis is going to come in our lives. So this morning, what I'd like to talk about is, well, how do I handle a crisis? How do I handle a crisis? In the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a comparison again of two Man, it comes through all, all about 1 Samuel. You'll see David and Saul being compared by the writer. And this morning, it's going to be how do they handle the crisis, a national crisis that both of them are going to have to lead the nation through. And it's very, very different. And the passage I'm going to read to you this morning, I'll be honest, it's one of the weirdest chapters in the entire Bible that you're ever going to read. It is strange. It's lengthy. Whenever I'm going through these narratives, I like to try and get the, the whole thing in there. It's a, it's a lengthy reading, so feel free to stay seated while I read through 1 Samuel 
chapter 28. I'm going to start at verse 5 and read through verse 25. Feel free to stay seated. Starting at verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when, he saw, when, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him. And he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now, the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. It's an odd passage. Not only is it one of the strangest in the book of 1 Samuel, it's one of the strangest in the entire Bible. And we've been going through 
week after week, these stories, these true stories about David and David's rise to power in a nation that was being forced and individuals that are being forced to trust God in these times of upheaval and great transition. And then we come to our subject today because we see David presented with a crisis in chapter 27, and we see Saul presented with a crisis in chapter 28. And how are they going to handle it? So this morning, I want to go along in this way, looking at what we have brought up. First of all, and this is stemming from last week, that trusting God grows as it's acted upon. I want to touch on chapter 27 just a bit and take a look at how David is handling his own crisis with Saul. And then we'll see that crises reveal sources of strength. It's, it's a low point in the life of Saul. He's doing what he's doing, consorting with a medium and some Bibles may even say a witch at this place called Endor. And then finally, we'll see that we practice now like we'll play then. In other words, we want to be living now in such a way to prepare us for the forthcoming crisis that will come at some point in our lives. We all face that final crisis called death, and it's coming for all of us at some point. So four things to put into practice now to prepare for whatever that next crisis is going to be. So let's step in and, first of all, look at this continued growth of trust in David. I want to, again, touch on chapter 27. It uh, leads us into what's going on with Saul. Because at the beginning of chapter 27, David made a pretty drastic decision. If we go back and look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27, it says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David has been forced to abandon all hopes of reconciling with Saul. He's tried twice. Saul's tried to kill him twice. And Samuel the prophet is dead. In chapter 27, interestingly, God isn't mentioned at all. The author doesn't bring God into the story in chapter 27. So in a sense, David is acting on what he simply knows to do. He and his family, there's 600 loyal soldiers with him. They're now living in enemy territory. But the family and troops are all dependent on David. So he's got to leave. And this is where it gets really interesting because there's not a prophet available to tell him what the word of the Lord is to do next. Or a priest that he can consult. A priest kept those stones called the Orem and the Thummim. They could pull out and enroll them and they could help the leaders make decisions. So David must lead simply based on what he knows to do from previous circumstances and what God has said to him. He knows his task. He knows his mission without a lot of specifics. And this is an unorthodox move because he's now gotten into this like devoted relationship with this guy, Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is where Goliath was from. So now he's consorting with this guy. As a matter of fact, he's made some deals. But what Achish, this guy, didn't know is that David was using the land of the Philistines at this time as his home base. And it gave him a cover from Saul. And for a year and four months, he was launching attacks against Israel's enemies. Again, there's an army 
that's sort of bearing down on him. However, he has sought refuge in the land of the Philistines. And he's issuing all these attacks. And then you may ask, well, why is this guy Achish allowing this? Well, he didn't know what was going on. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 27, it says, When Achish asked David, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the, the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David is done. Such was his custom. All the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Now, David's not telling the truth to this king. It's not the first time he's, he's fibbed around a bit. He's doing it again now. Because these aren't the people that he's actually attacking. It looks like those were actually Israelites, you know, the Negev of Judah. He's telling this king, wow, I'm attacking your enemies, Israel. Now, he wasn't. This king thought that he was. So David is very shrewdly gaining control of more land for Israel. You see, he's simply doing what he knows he's supposed to be doing. And that's, see, that's what we're to do. And if you're in the middle of a crisis right now, and by the way, graduation may feel like one at times. What's next? What am I going to do? Then there'll be others that come along. Don't neglect what you know you're supposed to do. Don't quit coming to church. Don't quit praying. Don't quit taking care of yourself. That's important to remember when you're in the middle of a crisis as well. Whenever I've um, counseled with a family that's been through a traumatic kind of death experience, sometimes when a child has been lost, one of the first things I'll do, I'll show up, I'll pray with them. And then before I leave, I always say the same thing. Make sure you're drinking plenty of water. Because when you're in that place, you will neglect to do simple things. And actually, water will wash out toxins in your system that the stress creates. Be the dad, be the mom, the student, the employee that you know you should be when you're going through a really tough time. That'll actually help you through it as you're grieving. To day by day, moment by doing, keep doing what you know you need to be doing. That's what David is doing here. That's what one who is following God, that's how they face a crisis. I want to take a closer look now at Saul in this really weird story in chapter 28. Because we also see that the crises will reveal what our sources of strength are. And uh, Saul, he, he tragically completes his separation from God here in this passage. He'd already been acting without God. And now in a moment of desperation, when the Holy Spirit had already left him, he approaches this medium, this spiritist, this, what some versions would say, a witch. In verses 3 through 6 in chapter 27, it's important to make, a, I'm sorry, in chapter 28, I want to make a couple of observations from those verses. Because it says there, I didn't read 3 and 4, but it says in those verses, one, that Samuel was dead. That had been the prophet that Saul had earlier depended on. Secondly, that all the mediums and the necromancers, a necromancer is one who speaks with the dead, they'd all been banished from the land. And third, the Philistines were gathering, and it was absolutely terrifying Saul. 
And then we get to verses 6 and 7. And it says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Orem, that was the stones the priests had, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So here lies really the greatest difference between Saul and David, because David will persist in doing what he knows he should do, even in the absence of God giving him new information. With Saul, that is not the case. He seeks out exactly whom he should not. And we get into this weirdness, this conjuring up of the dead Samuel. And this is, by the way, this is one of those chapters you spend about two or three class periods in seminary on. And by the time you get to the end of it, you're kind of like still scratching your head a bit. Because it's, it's not normative that it would happen this way. Now, this time in Israel, ancestor worship happened among the pagans, the Canaanites that lived around them. They would often seek out knowledge from the dead to help them uh, proceed in whatever decisions they needed to be making. There were some Israelites that participated in this as well. And this would include uh, divination, that's seeking out information from spirits, bringing about a spirit. And Saul thought he'd be interested in talking to the dead. And that would be the, the dead prophet Samuel. Now, he's limiting what he wants to do to necromancy. Okay, That's speaking with someone you know that is, that is dead. And the witch seems hesitant. She knew that her and her like had been banned from the land. And she feared for her life. And nevertheless, up comes Samuel. And then there's some surprises. <clears throat> Starting at verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, one mystery here is how did she all of a sudden know this was Saul? It seems that the spirit that Samuel may have told her this. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, a God was a word, this, uh, this term uh, Elohim, uh, the Hebrew, it could mean a celestial being, some kind of otherworldly presence. In this case, a lowercase g, God. Some versions say a spirit. Coming up out of the earth, they believed that when someone died, you went to a place called Sheol. It was a, a place where you just kind of went and kicked around in the dust. You know, they didn't have a, a full picture of what the afterlife was at this point in the Old Testament. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, the old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. Now, again, questions come up from this encounter that there's really no definitive answers for. Um, like, you know, why is she so surprised to see Samuel? It almost suggests that she kind of faked it at times or else um, this was actually a being that was recognized and ordinarily that was not the case. If she does this for a living, why did it shock her? Then how did she suddenly know who Saul was? And notice the text does not say that she was the one that brought up the spirit, just that the spirit came up. And there was one commentator that noted on this passage that mediums and spiritists do not have access to the dead, but communicate with evil spirits posing as people who have died. That is why these spirits are called lying spirits. 
And there's a lot of problems with seeking out someone like this. Now, in the New Testament, you see demonic activity giving people a picture of what was going to happen in the future. Evidently, the demonic realm has some knowledge of the immediate future and what's going to happen, knowledge that goes beyond what ordinary mortals have. And um, I wanted to mention something that Another uh, commentator said about this, that spiritists today are deceived insofar as they really believe they are communicating with spirits of the dead. And listen to this very, very carefully. For it is easy for spirits of evil to impersonate any of the dead, even the most devoted and saintly Christians. They've watched them, this is in Acts 19, 15, all their lives and can easily counterfeit their voices or say anything about them and their actions when on earth. It's not for us to be afraid of the demonic world, but it does exist. And people that go and seek out, there are modern-day spiritists and channelers. Those beings they are seeking out, when you peer into that world, you don't know what you're getting. And you don't know what a being made like this may try and disguise themselves as. They are apt to want to deceive as many as they can. Maybe even pretending to be somebody from another planet. That's another sermon for another day. So the Old Testament ban on magic, you know, it's not because that the magic itself was ineffective. It was because it was effective that it was banned. And, and seeking out that kind of knowledge was seen as human rebellion. They were not to do that. In a similar way in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were tempted by that serpent... That serpent did give them additional knowledge that they did not have, and they were not to have had it. And this is knowledge that Saul is seeking out that he is not to have had. So then putting all these unanswered questions behind us, the point here is that, that God chooses to bring Samuel, he appears to Saul, he communicates to him, and the news is not good. And look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I love that part right there. It's like, you know, I was just fine where I was. And here I am, kind of perturbed. And Saul said, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you. Again, you see the hubris of Saul. I have summoned you, like he had the power to do this to tell me what I shall do. Interesting response. Leave me alone, would you? That doesn't sound like somebody just kicking around in a dusty place. We get a little bit of a picture here in the Old Testament of what the afterlife was going to be, something better than the present world. And Samuel is completely unsympathetic. And Saul had continued in sin by consulting the dead. And the news is the next day, Saul and his son, Samuel says, are going to join me. In other words, Samuel said, you'll join me in being dead tomorrow. And the kingdom is going to be given to the Philistines. Saul is in despair. It's bad news. And where we turn to in a crisis says a lot about us. And Saul had already embraced the perverse purpose of eliminating David. And he was acting on that. The one that God had chosen to be the next king. So then moving this towards us, how do we practice now so we'll know how to play 
when the worst happens. And I want to talk about four practices, four ways to do this. And I want to say at the outset that Christians should never, ever seek out this kind of knowledge. You know, these so-called modern-day spiritists, they're at best a fraud, at best. They're at worst someone who's communing with some kind of otherworldly spirit that they have absolutely no control over. And they're being used. And those spirits lie. And they can impersonate voices. Don't go there. So four things here. First of all, you need to distinguish the counterfeits. Distinguish the counterfeits. What do I mean by that? In moments of desperation, we may choose to go to something that we know is wrong. The initial response, fear and stress, may push you towards something that you know to be a sin. It can come in a lot of forms. Drugs, alcohol, pornography. And by the way, if you're stuck in that kind of a coping mechanism right now, please contact the church and we'll try to help you uh, get out of that. There are places and people and organizations around here that, that want to help you come up with healthy, godly coping mechanisms. Again, you see David able to cope and go about doing what he knows he should be doing. You see Saul choosing a very different path forward. But you've got to recognize these for what they are. And when you look at the false gods and what they demanded in the Old Testament, inevitably it was almost always sex and violence. They had temple prostitutes that were there to try and uh, excite the gods. Or you would see the priests like at, uh, at Mount Carmel cutting themselves. And the gods, those lowercase g gods, they demand similar things today. Let us help you get the help you need if you need it. And then secondly, avoid a transactional relationship with God. And what does that mean? Most of us probably here aren't going to seek out uh, Madam Chloe or something like that or some kind of a spiritist or medium. But there is a subtle way Christians have a magical approach to God. And um, it's the way we will use spiritual disciplines. For example, if you give money thinking, if I do this, I'm going to get more in return. That's a subtle form of Christian magic. If you think that just because you come to church or just because you visit someone in need, that you're not going to have any problems and things will go better for you, that's a subtle form of Christian magic. See, we don't do these things to make a transaction with God, like a quid pro quo, a tit for tat. It, no, we do these things to express the love we have for God. Americans tend not to think this way. We tend to think that because we are a quote-unquote Christian nation, by the way, I don't know what that is even, that we get our special bless, blessings and riches. Don't, it, it, that is a dangerous approach to God. When this happens, when someone does something nice for us, we start to get suspicious. What do they want? Or maybe you've done something for someone else because you expected something in return. With God, it doesn't work this way. He loves you unconditionally. You can't earn more love from God. Not transactionally. And then thirdly, be mindful of experiences. Be mindful of experiences. You saw that spiritist reaction when a spirit came up. Evidently, this was not something she was used to seeing. 
And she realized in that moment she was not in control. You know, when you base your decisions on some kind of a extra biblical experience, beware. If you're trying to think about, should I, should I take that job? And it's the job as a teacher, and you're laying on your back looking at the clouds, and one of the clouds happens to look like a big T, and you're like, hey, it's a sign. Beware. Because the demons control weather too. You see in the book of Job. Be mindful of it. Be leery of subjective experiences like that, especially when you're in crisis mode. And then finally, take a look at what you believe. Take a look at what you believe. Ultimately, we're all going to face that ultimate crisis of death itself. It's a, a big part of my job, believe it or not, is to make sure we're all prepared for that moment. Are you believing rightly about what happens when you die? That in an instant you'll be with the Lord. And you'll be lifted out of this miserable, sin-filled world, and you'll be in the arms of your Savior. In the meantime, listen very carefully. Don't cut your trip short. Suicide is unthinkable for the Christian. No matter what you're facing, God will give you the grace to get through it. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. For every bad thing that happens to a, a Christian, we have the hope that God will turn it into something good. For the good things in our life, the things that God has given us, we can live with the truth that God's never going to take it away. Focus on the truth that you hold about him. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And putting this all together, practice now to be prepared for the crisis later. Practice now to be prepared the crisis later. I want to close with a short story about this man. His name is Rich, Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian Jew, and he's been called the voice of the underground church. In the 40s, he was jailed and tortured by communists. He was known, even to his atheist captors, to always be sharing the gospel all the time, no matter what, no matter what they believed. And in one experience, and he had the 14 years in prison, he wrote that the political officer one time asked him harshly, how long will you continue to keep your stupid religion? He said to him, I've seen innumerable atheists regretting on their deathbeds that they have been godless. They called on Christ. He said, can you imagine that a Christian could regret when death is near that he has been a Christian and call on Marx or Lenin to rescue him from his faith? And the atheist laughed and said that was a clever answer. And he continued to say this. I continue, when an engineer has built a bridge, the fact that a cat can pass over the bridge is no proof that the bridge is good. He said a train must pass over it to prove its strength. The fact that you can be an atheist when everything goes well does not prove the truth of atheism. It does not hold up in moments of great crisis. And when these moments come up in our own lives, we want to be prepared not with a weak faith, but one that can withstand the weight of anything, including death itself. Please pray with me.
Almighty God. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for taking the sting out of death itself. Lord Jesus, you paved the way. You showed us what would happen when we died through your ascension and resurrection into heaven. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that's in any way questioning where they stand with you, if they're unsure of what happens in the great beyond, when they stand on that precipice looking on, when their moment comes, I pray that today would be the day that they give their life to you, that they trust you, that only you can hold the weight of any crisis that may come into our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.